Now, this morning, we are in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, and I'm excited to get into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is um, just a great few chapters that we're going to be covering over the next couple months. Uh, we're going to, it's just two ch- or three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7, but in those chapters, it's going to take us a while to get through it. Um, you know, he spoke it in one sitting, Jesus did, uh, but we have the privilege and opportunity to break it down and really digest what it is that he said at that time. So the title of this morning's message is, This is Living. This is living. It's going to make sense as I explain this to you. At this point, Jesus has been introduced to the world. The world witnessing his power, his authority, his compassion, his love. He had healed many people. He was drawing large numbers of people unto himself. He was preaching the certainties and teaching with perfect explanation. The crowds, again, were increasing as people gathered around They came from Galilee and Decapolis, the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan, according to Matthew 4.25. We went over that last week. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 that we're covering this morning, we begin as we consider the crowds that were coming. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Saying, And again, he goes on through chapter 5, through chapter 6, and through chapter 7, teaching them what it is to truly live daily following him. The light of the world has truly dawned on mankind, and he's about to spend a considerable amount of time teaching those who are following him. So it would do us good to take our time as we go through these verses and really understand what he said in that moment, on that specific day, on that hill, to his followers. Jesus did not go up onto the mountain in order to withdraw from the people that were coming around him. In fact, he went to this position on the hill to gain a better place or a better position from which to draw them to his words and unto himself. That's what he was doing. And as I thought about this, I thought about our own lives. Because I believe that God allows us to get into certain positions in life today in order that He may gain a better position and gain our full attention. And for us to be able to hear His voice over everything else and everyone else around us. Why? Because he truly desires for his words to be heard, for his words to be understood, and for his words to be lived. Why? Because we need to know God's wisdom in every circumstance to glorify him, no matter what. At a certain point, as Jesus had all these followers coming after him, crowds came around him and just really pushed in on him. There was a point where he was teaching some things that were very difficult. And the crowd started to kind of thin out a little bit. It was at a certain point that he turned to his disciples. And I'm paraphrasing myself loosely. And he said, are you going to leave too? And Peter, filled with his spirit, said, 
where are we going to go? You, you are the only one that has the words of eternal life. He has the words of eternal life. There's no one else that has these words for us. To live life and live life abundantly here on earth is what he desires. But more importantly, that we would look to his words as a source of hope, looking forward to the promise of forever being in his glory. And so the teacher took a position up on the hill and sat down. By the way, this was a common posture in the day of the teacher. It was customary for the teacher to sit down and for everyone else to stand up or remain standing. For us, um, I think sometimes it would do us good to, to stand up. You know, How much more would we pay attention if, if the students were to stand up? It's, like it, it's, a, it's a place, if, if you've ever been in the military, um, you were not to sit down when someone of authority came into the room. In fact, you would hear something like this. If an officer came into the room, you would, you would hear... What? Attention on deck. And everyone would rise to their feet. I remember this happening in the classroom in boot camp. And oh man, you, you would hear like chairs sometimes fly. Chairs flying, uh, tables being moved, desks being moved. And it doesn't matter what was in your way. You would stand to attention. He, he, that person had your full attention. Your ear was perked up listening to whatever it was that that person was going to say. And most of the time you'd hear, at ease, or as you were, right? And then you could kind of relax a little bit, but, but not fully, right? Not fully. And then you'd receive the command to go ahead and be seated. You may be seated, right? but you have to wait for it. I think it would do us good for us when we come across the Word of God to stand at attention as far as our, our spiritual posture is con- concerned. That we would really give it attention. If we're too cozy, if we're too comfortable, w- w- the posture that we have when we come to the Word of God, then maybe we, sh- we should physically stand up and read His Word to really just truly grasp what He's telling us. So the te- teacher took a, a, a better vantage point, a better position with the disciples And he opened his mouth and he taught them. And Jesus speaks and the multitudes listen. These are his disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is what we've come to know this sermon by. The sermon again begins in chapter 5 and goes all the way through chapter 7. He begins by saying, it begins by saying, Tell us that, or Matthew 5, 2 says, He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, And then it closes in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, the people in that time were used to being taught by the scribes who had no authority. All they were doing was repeating what they've been taught by others who taught them. It was like, well, the authority was the teacher, but the teacher didn't really have authority either because it went on from that teacher to the teacher that taught him. So they were in awe. They were astonished. Because by the end of this sermon, they knew that he was speaking in his own and by his own authority. 
This also says, this verse, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, that when Jesus taught, it was with energy, with strength, speaking with sincere and intense conviction. It wasn't just, hey, by the way, I, I want to tell you a few things. Kind of gather around. No. No, no, no. It was as it was concluded. It was with authority. It was with energy. It was with conviction. Sometimes I have to say, we would do the Word of God, I don't know, it's like, I don't understand how it is that the Word of God can be taught in monotone in a monotone way. You know, like, uh, well, let's get into the Word of God here. You know, and it says, and yeah, it says this too. And it's like, oh man, come on, let's wake up, right? This is the Word of God. This is life. This is everything that pertains to life and godliness. You know what I mean? How is it that we can do that? Jesus himself taught with a conviction, with energy, with strength. Physically, he was nothing to look at. Scripture tells us this. He wasn't this tall, dark, and handsome guy. Um, You know, nothing like uh, Travis or nothing like Gabe, you know. Come on, guys. No, but Jesus, the Bible tells us that he, he wasn't... He wasn't someone that you would think, wow, how handsome, how strong, how... No. He was very common. And yet, he had a very special message for all of us. And he was the one that went to the cross and spilled his blood on behalf of you and I. Jesus didn't speak with reservation. But he did lift up his voice and he spoke clearly, perfectly. These words that are life, the very substance of a life that reflects God. That is what these words are. Do you want to know what it is to live a life that means something? I know I do. I want to come to know. I want to learn. I want to understand what it is to live a life that means something. Not that the world says or defines Not what the culture around us uh, defines it as. I want to know what Jesus said it is to live a life that means something. Jesus was about to teach them how to live. This this is what we're covering. David Guzik said this, quote, It has been said, If you took all the good advice for how to live, ever uttered by any philosopher or psychiatrist or counselor, took out all the foolishness and boiled it all down to the real essentials, you would be left with a poor imitation of this great message by Jesus. Close quote. This is not something that happens in a person by sheer personal will and personal strength to gain and maintain. But rather, this character is built from the inside out as the Spirit of God conforms us to the image of Christ through surrender and trust and denying our own will to that of God's. In other words, this is the result of Jesus being Lord in our own lives. And so Jesus opened his mouth and taught them how to live well and right, sane. And let's read it through. 
Verse 3, or let's start at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I can say this, and this is, this is just my own perspective on this, is if you were to just read through that, you could, you could say amen, you know, you could agree to it, but you miss so much by just kind of reading through it. That's why we're going to take our time and kind of just break it down. Now, salvation. The Sermon on the Mount does not deal directly with salvation. But it does give what a life of following Jesus and living under his rule or under his authority should look like in everyday life, in the newness of life that we come to know in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In fact, Beatitudes, which these are known as the Beatitudes, right? It literally means the blessing or the blessings. And these should be the attitudes that are reflected as blessings in the life of a new creature in Christ, a Christian, you and I. Remember Jesus said, as we read through, not blessed will you be in the future, but blessed are. Blessed are those that are described in this manner whose very character reflects the character of God. And this is abundant life in Christ. This is living today. In fact, Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. That's for the present day. That's not in the future, but that's today. To be blessed is to possess a divine joy full of certain hope, satisfied in Christ, possessing that peace which surpasses all understanding. Understanding the serenity that can only be found in Jesus Christ. It's a joy that's absolutely untouchable, that cannot be moved by any set of personal circumstances. And that is true happiness. Happy is the man that, today, blessed, fulfilled, content, joyful in the Lord, never ever being able to be moved by what we experience in life. This is true happiness. And that's what Jesus was communicating to his disciples on this very day. First of all, we're going to take a look at the heart of the blessed. That is, let's start out with spiritual bankruptcy. Being poor in spirit. That's really what that is. Verse 3, once more, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where it starts. Everything starts right there. 
This doesn't mean that you don't have any personal value, that you're insignificant, that you're, you're absolutely nothing. That would be untrue. That would be unbiblical. Who is man that you would consider him? You think you have no value? Then why did Jesus go to the cross? You think you have no value? Think again. Because God knew you before you were even in your mother's womb. You think you have no value. He gave you this whole book that you would be reconciled unto him and understand who he is in your life and just how much he loves you. So it doesn't mean that we are insignificant or have absolutely no value. What it does mean is that the person who is poor in in spirit is a person who knows they possess nothing that would commend them to God. That's what that means. Understanding that they are spiritually bankrupt, nothing to offer, and yet everything to gain from submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. A person who knows that they could offer nothing to earn their right in heaven. It's to acknowledge our sinfulness, a confession of falling short before a righteous and pure God. Romans 3.23, it's coming right alongside, and that's why we we go through some of these verses prior to um, putting out a call to repent. It's understanding that there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's understanding that this is the first step. We are spiritually bankrupt. We bring nothing to the table except our own lives. And as we surrender them to the Lord, He gives us everything. He gives us eternal life. The attitude is that of a person who would need to beg for whatever they get and know that whatever they have is because of God's grace. And again, everyone needs to start here with God and and can start here because it is a reality for each and every person. And it must be confessed first before any of the other beatitudes can truly be possessed. A beggar who acknowledges that they have nothing in and of themselves to receive the kingdom of heaven believes, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we believe that. We come to know that. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, we bring nothing to the table. We cannot earn it. We simply receive it. It's God's gift. And this sets up the rest of the Beatitudes to be possible. It's a beggar's dependence on God's power. Therefore, we go on to the following Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's take those individually. Let's talk about, first of all, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, this is no casual mourning. In fact, this is a mourning that is filled with anguish. Have you ever been in anguish? 
A mourning that is absolutely painful. That's what this is referring to. It's a, it's a mourning that expresses a severe, distressing spirit. It's a deep grief over our fallen state and the consequences of our sin. In other words, it's a passionate lament over our sins. Again, the consequences of our sins. As John explained, hey, listen, we need, we need to really take into account those things which are an offense to God and bring them before the Lord and ask Him for forgiveness. Let, let us not come to the table in a flippant manner, lightly taking communion, this fellowship with God and join it with Him, like as if it's something light. It's not. Our relationship with Him is not to be taken lightly. Have you ever considered your sin and the consequence of your sin, whatever that may be? And have you anguished over it? If we don't know that we're spiritually bankrupt, and have nothing before the Lord, we'll never get here. Because this is not referring to just any state of mourning but specifically and because of the acknowledgement that we are first spiritually bankrupt, poor in spirit. And if we remain without Jesus Christ, the consequence of our sin is eternal damnation in hell. Apart from God in heaven. It's not what the world says, oh, there's this, this other place where you go and um, you can do other things. No, the, the Bible describes hell very well, very clearly. It's not just this place separated from heaven. It's a place of intense pain and anguish, gnashing of teeth, where someone goes for eternity that has denied the grace of God through Jesus Christ. There's no relief, there's no satisfaction although you will search for it every moment of every day for all eternity. Paul wrote about this type of mourning, mourning about the consequences of our sin. He said in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. It's being sorry without fully repenting and coming to the place of asking for forgiveness. Why? Because we don't feel that we need to be forgiven of anything. You're just sorry, perhaps, that it's not the thing that's acceptable. The mourning that we experience is a path that leads to comfort in Christ. It, it is not the actual destination. That's not somewhere where we are to remain. But God has desi designed this godly sorrow to be the very path that leads us to repentance and understand and receive and know comfort in Christ. That's what we see here. Why? Because for those who acknowledge they are poor in spirit and mourn for sin's consequences outside of Christ, will trust in Him and know a fellowship with God who knows our sufferings. He's acquainted with our grief. 
And he comes alongside and brings us perfect comfort. Perfect comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now verse 5 said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think meekness is misunderstood. It's, I think it's um, not defined correctly much of the time. Because meekness here is actually the idea of being properly balanced between anger and indifference. A powerful personality, properly controlled, as well as possessing humility. This is not a person who is easily pushed around, who is passive, but it is truly a person who has amazing strength and yet is under control. The picture is often given of a strong stallion that is well-trained, often worked to a lather by a trainer who has complete and total control over it. And as a bridle and a bit is placed around his head and into his mouth, he uses that strength and control and discipline to do a job that is specific and directed by the master who has given the reins. Uh, I grew up around horses, quarter horses, Peruvian pasos, thoroughbreds. And I remember seeing my uncle work these horses. He would have them in, in the arena, and he would have the long lead, and he would have a, uh, his whip, right? And he would crack the wick be, behind him, and he would just run them around. And he'd work them to a lather. I mean, almost to a frenzy to where just foam was coming out of their mouth. They were sweating. And then he would cool them down. I would give them a bath. And they would be placed on the walker. And they'd walk around until they were dry. Brush them, put them away. These horses would be later used to, to race, to show, and to go on some good trail riding but they were used by the person who was riding them. They were trained, they were disciplined. Such great power. And yet they were led and ruled by a harness and a bit that was placed in their mouth. That's a great picture of meekness. A meek person, these are people who can, can and do suffer wrong without falling into a state of bitterness. These are people who fail to fall into the error of harboring and desiring revenge. A people who can and do restrain their personal wrath and obedience to the will of God. It takes great strength. It's not something who is, someone who is weak who does this. It's like they're so weak, they can't stand up for themselves. Oh, Perhaps the weak person is the, is the one who feels that it's their place to always stand up for themselves in that way to the shame of the Lord. A meek person is strong in Christ and will not be angry unless they can be angry and not sin. There are people who won't be easily provoked to anger by others. A meek person is one who first submits to God and conforms to His Word, and second exhibits a spiritual strength and total reliance in God and His Spirit 
to be humble before men, gentle and patient without compromise. That's the key, without compromise. And in this, Jesus says, the meek will inherit the earth. That is, that that is the promise of God, that the meek ones cannot be overcome. Perhaps one may seem to be overcome, but those who are meek will never be overcome. Not on this earth, because that is God's promise. They cannot be driven from the earth by any means that man or government or an intolerant body of people comes up with against them. That that is a great promise. God promises His blessing shall be for the person who is meek. This is for the person who is a new creature in Christ Jesus, filled with God's Spirit and is under His rule and authority. Jesus Christ. Meekness takes on a whole new meaning as we come to understand it in our own lives. And we should always work to submit ourselves, surrender ourselves to the Lord and allow Him to conform us into His image. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It is the person who is poor in spirit, mourns for their sin, and are meek who will truly hunger and thirst for righteousness. In, we have to come to this place. I would beg you to you yourself do a spiritual assessment. To kind of think right now. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? I mean truly, not just kind of lightly, but I'm talking about really hungering and thirsting for righteousness. If you have trouble reading your Bible, consistently praying and consistently desiring to be in fellowship, then perhaps it is because you don't believe you're poor in spirit. You don't mourn over the consequences of your sin, and there's no real spiritual strength that you possess because you are not ruled and governed by Jesus Christ in your life. He doesn't have that bridle in your mouth, so to speak. He doesn't have the harness over your head. You haven't submitted to His discipline in your life regularly. Perhaps you're out of shape. Then the hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if all this is lacking or some, it won't exist in your life. The hunger and thirst for righteousness is the continual state of a child of God who longs for being satisfied in Jesus Christ, knowing that it can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been truly hungry? Have you ever been truly thirsty? I'm not talking about just, man, you, you, you just got done working out, you've had a long day, and you sit down and you're like, man, I haven't had anything to drink all day. I think I'll see if there's a cold water in the refrigerator. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about having foregone eating breakfast and lunch and then figure out later on that you're really hungry and eat something. I'm really hungry. Because there's a sense of desperation 
there's a painful feeling that wells up inside of a person who is truly hungry and thirsty. A deep dissatisfaction that you know will only be relieved by just a little bit of food, by just a little bit of water. A person who hungers and thirsts in this manner, for God will run to him often. It's a passion for him that is stirred up and will never be satisfied by any other means. Psalm 42.1 says, As a deer pants for a flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. We can say it. We can post it up on our social media. We can even have it up on our wall and yet never come to understand that. How sad that is for a child of God. We have this picture of a deer that finally sees that stream of water and is so thirsty that it runs to it with all its might. And when it arrives, it dips its mouth into the river, into the water, and drinks in deeply. That water flows into its mouth and receives that water that fills it with satisfaction and replenishes it with what it needs to continue and knows it well. Knows nothing of any other distractions around it but just that water. That's all it needs. We often hunger and thirst for other things. Position, power, success, wealth, comfort, happiness. But how many of us truly hunger and thirst for righteousness? And I believe from my own experience that many in the Western world and the United States specifically don't know what it means to truly hunger and thirst. Have you ever experienced the feeling of having to beg for food or water? Perhaps, perhaps you have. But most of us have not experienced that. In Haiti, many of the people that we came across um, had no pride. They would give the universal sign of hunger. And they would ask for food. They said, We're hungry. Just want a scrap. Just want something. There's no personal pride. They hungered. They thirsted. But there are too many things that come before hungering and thirsting for righteousness in our world today. Too many things. Too many distractions. But a person who does hunger and thirst for righteousness is promised that they will be satisfied. It will, they will truly be satisfied. Imagine a daily ration that satisfies for the day but is never enough for tomorrow. A hunger and a thirsting that is felt drives us to seek satisfaction once more in intimacy with Jesus Christ. To seek a righteous nature, to be made more holy, to long for God's righteousness and to see that righteousness among those who are called brothers and sisters in Christ, a part of the body of Christ. 
That's what we are to hunger and thirst for. That righteousness, personally in our own lives and in the body of Christ. And Jesus said, and we're going to stop here, this is living. You want to know what it is to live? This is living. You're looking for it everywhere else, you won't find it. It's empty. Solomon said, I've tried everything under the sun. There's nothing new, by the way. It's all vanity. To fear God and obey his commandments. Mm. This is man's all. So Jesus is saying, this, this is living. This is it. To truly find life in Jesus Christ is to know our spiritual bankruptcy outside of him. We have nothing to offer but ourselves. To mourn for the consequences of our sin is to confess to God in agreement that we fall short and are in desperate need of his forgiveness or we will never know true comfort. And to truly live is to hunger and thirst for righteousness which causes us to passionately and desperately pursue a satisfaction that can only be found in Jesus Christ. David Guzik once again said, quote, No one mourns until they are poor in spirit. No one is meek toward others until he has a humble view of himself. If you don't sense your own need and poverty, you will never hunger and thirst after righteousness. You'll never be merciful toward others because you don't feel a need and you have not known mercy yourself. There's other things that as we go along and we we learn what it is and come to understand and receive the very instructions of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we understand what it is to truly live life. That's what the Lord desires for each and every one of us. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Not a little bit. It's not these other things. It's found in the very person who's saying these words. It's only found in Jesus Christ. You will only be satisfied in Him. Let me ask you this in closing. Do you know your need for Jesus Christ? Do you really truly know it? I, after having explained just these, these few verses, do you really understand your need for Jesus Christ? Do you really understand forgiveness of your sins through Him? And do you long for him in this way? Not, not just this kind of surfacey kind of a longing for him, but just a deep longing. I pray that we all continue to grow. I understand that I don't know of anyone who's actually here. I want to be honest with you guys. We are all in this journey together to be in this place, though. To understand what it truly is to live every day with the understanding that we were spiritually bankrupt. That when we forget, we, have, we allow the Lord to remind us what it truly means to be meek to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, to grow in our, 
our understanding of his word, to uh, grow in our wisdom, to grow in all of that and yet remain meek. Never compromising and yet understanding what it truly means to reflect the character of God in our own lives, to his glory. To be in that place to where we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, to pursue it by surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ. To know these things is to truly live. And I pray that for each and every one of us. If there is anyone here who does not know what it is to be forgiven and to know a right place with Jesus Christ, know that first and foremost, that first point that was made here, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. So it says in in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You gain heaven only when you come to the realization that you are poor in spirit. That there's nothing you bring in everything that you're given by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray that if there's anyone here who does not know a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, that this morning be the day of salvation and you surrender your life to him. For with that, there's all kinds of other promises that come your way. But the best one is that we are forgiven and that we will one day know him for all eternity face to face. And for all of us, I just pray that we would continue to look to the word of God to be that which guides us and directs us, conforms us and shapes us, and refines us and strengthens us to the glory of God. Father, we praise you, we love you, and we thank you that as we have nothing to offer you, that you take that very confession and Lord, you give us everything. Thank you for sending your son to this earth to die on the cross that through that sacrifice we may have eternal life by faith in him that he is the son of God and know an eternal relationship with you that is right. Thank you for demonstrating your love. Thank you for your perfect word. And thank you, Lord, that you continually guide us and direct us by the light that is given to us by your word. This is living, and I pray that you would help us to live lives that glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.